In the Old Testament law, it's kind of interesting. There's this uh, passage in uh, Deuteronomy and also in, I think, uh, Exodus, where it mentions that without the testimony of two witnesses, now it's Leviticus, Leviticus, you know, all of you, you guys' favorite books uh, in, the New, in the Old Testament, you know, the law, everybody loves the law, but in there, there's a thing that says, um, there's a law or a precept that's set up that according to the testimony of two witnesses, a thing shall be established. And in that case, it would allow for anybody that was accused to not only be allowed to be accused by one person. Now, we live in a society right now with different movements that basically all it takes is one person to speak unwell of you and everybody accepts it. But in the Jewish law, you could not be accused of anything and have charges actually substantiated against you unless there was a testimony of two witnesses. And so in this case, uh, that's going to tie in today because we're going to see the two witnesses of Revelation, and they are uh, bad motor scooters. They are interesting characters. But with that being said, in uh, Revelation so far, we have found ourselves uh, in chapter 1, verse 19. In case you're tired of hearing it, you can plug your ears now. But there's this divine outline where Jesus has told the apostle John to write the things which he had seen. Jesus walked with John while he was in his ministry here on earth. So he's going to write down the things that he had seen. He's going to write down the things which are, writing to the three, excuse me, the seven churches in, the, in Asia Minor at the time. He had a specific word for them. And then he said, write down the things that will take place after these things. And the after these things is primarily what most people are concerned about if they are to look at the book of Revelation. But many times people are overwhelmed by this book because they think it's, it's kind of a sealed book. I don't really understand the, the symbol, symbolism and, and all the analogies, and so I, I don't understand. But what you need to understand about Revelation is that Revelation primarily is quoting the Old Testament. It references it 70% of the time. And so if you want to understand Revelation, get to know the Old Testament books. And we're going to spend some time there today. So as we're in the after these things, and we're in the, um, the great tribulation period, there has been these bold judgments, excuse me, these seal judgments that were unleashed as the title deed of the earth was up for grabs. The title deed is up for redemption. And so Jesus steps forward and says to John, I am worthy. I'm able to loose the seals. And then all of heaven cries out and starts singing, worthy are you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And, and so he's worthy because not only is he the one that has the right to claim it, everybody wants to claim the deed to the earth. Everybody's trying to conquer the world. But in the reality of it, he's able to because he paid the price. He's the only one able to pay the price to redeem it from the consequences of sin. And so as we are in the great tribulation period, what we find is that we've spent time in the throne room, and then there was these seals loosed and these judgments. And then after that, there was these trumpet judgments where the announcement of the kingdom is coming. And then today, what we'll see is that after Revelation 9 and 10, these things have been opened and the two witnesses. So in chapter 10, Jesus gives this little book, this open, unsealed title deed to the earth. He gives it to his disciples, excuse me, to John. And as John looses it, he opens it. He says, I want you to eat this book. And I submitted to you that I think it's a little book, hopefully, because otherwise, how is he supposed to eat it? Unless it's like multiple bites. I don't know. He probably eats it like I eat a cupcake that nobody wants to see because it gets in my beard. And I, go, I do the whole thing where I go, because oh, I, I love icing, but I don't like how it gets all over me. And so I shove it in there. Well, he says, when you eat this book, I want you to recognize something. It's going to be sweet to your lips. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be like honey grams or teddy grams or crispy crispy creams. Let's go with that. That's a universal truth, right? Crispy creams I think are what manna ta tasted like in the Old Testament. It's like this honey wafer it like melts in your mouth, but you can't get enough of crispy creams. That's the only problem. It never satisfies. You're like, I could eat three more. Okay, maybe four more. And then before you know it, you're like, I don't think that I should still be alive after the consumption that I've just done. But the point is is it was sweet to his lips. 
sweet in his mouth, but when it went down and was absorbed into his body, it was bitter. The word of God is such that when you taste and see that the Lord is good, it is sweet. But when it gets down into your flesh, it gets into your stomach, it makes it bitter. There's this bitter sweetness to the word of God because while it's calling sinners to repent, it, it's telling them that they're sinners. But when it gets down into us, it nourishes us, it nourishes us but it also kills us. Jesus said, if anybody would follow after me, he must first, what? Deny himself, take up his electric chair or his death instrument, his cross, die to self and follow me instead. Not die to self and then follow me and then when you want to kind of take a caveat and do your own thing. He says, if anybody would come after me, he must deny himself completely and follow me. And I believe that most of this life is us continually laying down things that we thought we already did and picking up the words of life and saying, I'm going to believe this instead of my own desires and lusts. And so as we get into this, that's the context. He's just given him the word of God. He's absorbed it into himself. It's been sweet to his mouth, just as Jesus said. It's been bitter to his stomach, but as the title deed of the earth has been handed over, it's been redeemed. At this point, it's perfect time to set up the kingdom. If you're going to build a house, you first have to buy land. You buy the land, you accept it, you sign your name like 14,000 times. Congratulations, you're in debt forever. We need the blood of your firstborn, all the things that, that the paperwork's done, there's a mountain of it, and then, okay, now you are in debt officially, and if, you, if there's no house on it, you build it then, right? You don't get to build the house before the closing cost has been paid. You don't get to build the house before you own it. It's when you take ownership of it. Jesus has taken ownership of it. So at this point, in chapter 11, verse 1, John writes, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And this is where we get our word cannon. It's a measuring stick. It's a standard length. They would use a reed because they didn't have yardsticks. And this measuring rod it was sturdy. It was stable. It, it would hold its shape. And so you'd cut it to the right length, putting it up to the standard. And then you would have a measuring rod. He says, here's this reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying to John, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. I don't know if he was measuring how tall they were or how many there were, but the point is he's measuring because it's something that exists. He says, verse two, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So their location, he's in Jerusalem because this is where the temple mount is. And he says, I want you to measure the temple of God with this measuring instrument, measure the altar and measure those worshiping there. Now, this is after these things. This is, after the, this is in the tribulation. And he says, I want you to measure the temple. Well, here's the problem. If you look at this picture I have for you on the screen, there's no temple there. And you'd say, yeah, there is. There's, there's that big gold dome. Well, that is not the Israelites' temple. That is not the temple of Yahweh. That is a mosque set up over a broken piece of rock that is Mount Moriah. It's, it's rock that's exposed. Everything else on the Temple Mount, it's about 35 acres, is covered in uh, flagstone. But there's two places that have rock exposed, and it's the bedrock on which they believe that Abraham offered up his son to the Lord in obedience, and the Lord provided himself a sacrifice, the lamb. And so on that mount is where David and Solomon set up the temple, and that's where the place where God chooses to make his name dwell. But right now, the Gentiles have it, and it's the Muslims. And they have this dome of the rock set there, and it's covered in real gold. And on the outside of that temple, it says blasphemy. God does not beget, nor does he have a son. Why would it say that? Because it's kind of an important piece of truth. But in the case of the Temple Mount, there is no temple to Yahweh at this point. So he's measuring a temple, 
And the reality is for the Jews, the last time there was a temple on this mount was in 70 AD when Cyrus, excuse me, when, when the Romans came in, Tiberius, right? Uh, it's one of them. Anyway, they destroyed the temple and they took it apart piece by piece. And they even took, part of, took apart the foundation of the temple. So all over the history, and I wish I would have gone into it more, there's actually been occupation of this holy site. And to this day, it is very hard to get on the Temple Mount. The last time we went, we couldn't schedule a time to get on the Temple Mount. But in 2017, I got to go. But what you'll find is that he measured the temple, he measured the altar, but he was told not to measure the court of the gent- the, this place surrounding the temple. And in Old Testament times, the place surrounding the temple was the, the, t- the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was where anybody could go. Anybody could come and worship, but only certain people could come past certain places inside the Temple Mount. So he says, for the next 42 months, it will be tread by the Gentiles. 42 months is 1,260 days. It's also three and one half years. This is important because in the time of the tribulation, it will be a seven-year period. And at some point, the temple will be set up and it's being measured. He's having to measure it because it exists there. But he's also measuring it because um, he wants them to know that the dimensions are right. And, and so as we see the Temple Mount, I want to point out something to you. This is looking from the Mount of Olives. Jesus walked down from the Mount of Olives, and he walked in through the Eastern Gate, and he walked into the Temple Mount on the day of Palm Sunday that we celebrated a month or two ago. And when he walked in, they praised him and said, Hosanna, Messiah, save now, is what they were saying. And they were quoting scripture. Jesus came in, but he didn't come in on a, on a war horse. He came in on what? A donkey. He was coming in under a banner of peace. He came the first time to deal with mankind's sin. But he will come back. And when he does, he will set foot on the Mount of Olives. He will go down this same walk. He will be on a horse to cross the Kidron Valley. He will enter in through the east gate called the Golden Gate, and he will enter the Temple Mount, and he'll set up his throne. That's what we're getting ready to read. But, well, we're not going to read it today. We will in in Revelation. But I want to point something out that's kind of interesting. Because when you look at the Temple Mount right now, you see the Gentiles there. You see no temple And many people used to think that what was going to happen is Messiah was going to come. They were going to tear down the Dome of the Rock. Here's a problem. One and almost two billion of the world are right now professing Muslims. This is their third most holy site. What do you think would happen if they start tearing down that mosque? World war to end the world. It would not go well. It's already been a hotbed for years in Israel. But that would be the straw that broke the camel's back. So here's the deal. There is a scholar, and I can't remember his name because I'm not good at that, who actually did some research to find out where the temple location was on this 35 acres. And what they found out is that there is another piece of exposed rock that they believe held the Holy of Holies. And, And they say that because historically... In order to enter the temple, you would enter the eastern or the golden gate. Now, the golden gate, should have had the first arrow go up there, is right there where that yellow arrow was pointed. And the Turks actually took rock and covered this golden gate because prophecy says that the Messiah will enter through them. Now, the Messiah that we know ain't going to be stopped by no rocks. I think it'll be okay. But when he entered, he went into the temple from there. Now, I got ahead of myself, and you see the red arrow. That red arrow points to a place where the architects that built that Dome on the Rock mosque, they actually built two outbuildings. One is right in front of us, between us and that Dome on the Rock. And then there's another little gazebo out there, seems like there's no reason for it, called the Dome of the Tablets. Interesting name also called the Dome of the Spirit. Now, this is where many people, because of its being exposed and because of just happened to be a gazebo built there, many believe 
that it's actually the place of the original Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount site. Now, since I got to go there in 2017, I took a little panoramic photo. Here's a piece of it. That's the gazebo I was talking about that the red arrow was pointing to. And there is exposed bedrock of this Temple Mount that's a little bit higher. Now, many scholars believe that this was the place of the Holy of Holies for several reasons. One that I find interesting is that if you look at the rock that's under the Dome of the Rock, where they believe that Muhammad actually stepped foot from the earth and was ascended into heaven, it's all stone that's been broken with hammers. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, when they built the temple, every stone that was put in place was hewn or beaten off-site into its proper shape. And then when it came on the Temple Mount, there was no noise. Silence as they slid the rocks into place. Modern marvel, if you ask me, because I've never been to a construction site that had very quietness as they were building the building. But the point was, all the way through the Old Testament, when they would build altars, they would use stones that had not been beaten by hammers or chisels. This rock under the Dome of the Spirit, the Dome of the Tablets, has never been touched by a hammer or a chisel. So with that being said, many scholars believe, and many historians and and biblical theology peoples with doctorates and smarter than me believe that this is the original location. Another reason is because if you look from the Mount of Olives, if he comes down off the Mount of Olives and he walks through that eastern or that golden gate, what it's called, and you walk straight into that red arrow, it's a straight shot. It's going to come across the Kidron Valley. Now, we were reading this morning in our yearly plan, something I thought was interesting, in Kings, or excuse me, I think it's Second Samuel or Second Kings, where David is kicked out of the the city of Jerusalem by his son Absalom. And as he goes, he has the opportunity to stay, but his son Absalom is essentially overthrown or won the hearts of the people. And he's essentially a type of the Antichrist. And he actually uh, causes David to have to leave the city. And he crosses the Kidron Valley as he leaves and he goes up to the Mount of Olives. Just like Jesus, when he was killed in Jerusalem, came out of the city, ascended from the Mount of Olives to heaven, so also he will come back, and in just a couple chapters, or maybe less, King David's going to come back into the city as a type of Jesus Christ coming back into the city. Sorry, that was just something I found interesting this morning. It has nothing to do with Revelation, but I just think that the types in the Old Testament are very uh, encouraging. So that said, here we have the Dome of the Spirits, and I believe that this is where this temple is being described. And so he says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So this brings us to another thought. If the Gentiles are allowed and given piece of the the holy uh, platform here, it makes me think that when Antichrist comes in, he's going to set up a peace deal. And when he sets up this peace deal, many believe that he'll actually make it possible for the Jews not to tear down the mosque, but instead, can't we all just get along and build the temple right next to it? And when they build the temple right next to it, they will be allowed to worship on the same hill as the Muslims, which seems awesome, right? All of a sudden, peace in the Middle East. Who hasn't been crying out for that? I remember back in the 90s, everybody was looking for peace in the Middle East. How can we come to it? How can we make compromises on both sides? But I think that this political Messiah that they find, the Antichrist, will be able to encourage both sides to just get along And then at the right time, he's going to walk into the temple of the Jews and he's going to proclaim himself to be God and their eyes will be open and they'll be asked to bow their knee to foreign gods and, and they'll see for the first time that this is not the Messiah. And at that point, things will get way worse. And so at this point, we see ourselves in uh, Revelation 11. He says they will tread it for 42 months, three and a half years. And then he says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So there will be two witnesses that show up in Jerusalem and they will prophesy. They will foretell the truth of God and everyone that hears it will be accountable to it. 
And as they're prophesying, it says that they will do it for, look at that, three and a half years, just as long as the, the Gentiles tread that mount. And they will prophesy clothed in sackcloth. If you know anything about Jewish history, oops, there was another arrow on the screen there that I was supposed to use. Look how cool. Sackcloth is not something that you wear when you're going to go on Memorial Day and celebrate at the river. Because we go about comfort. Sackcloth was something that was very itchy. It was like a potato sack. And wool and rough. And they would wear it because it was irritating. It was meant to make you miserable. They were mourning. And anytime somebody was mourning in the Old Testament, they would do it in sackcloth. And they would throw ashes on their head. And it's like the opposite of comfort. But it was a sign of brokenness over what was going on. Well, it says these two prophesy 1,260 days, and they're clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Remember, he's getting ready to set up his earthly throne, and before he does that, he's going to set up two lampstands and two olive trees. Now, he's referring to Zechariah chapter 4. But before we get there, verse 5 says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1 through 14, talks about these two olive trees. And I have a picture there for you if you can see it. But let's turn to Zechariah, one of the last Old Testament prophets. If you get to Matthew and then keep going to the left, you'll get to Micah. Excuse me, maybe it's Malachi, the other M, and then then Zechariah, chapter 4. In the days of Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 4, verse 1 says, The angel who talked with him came back and wakened him as a man who is wakened out of his sleep and said to me, What do you see? And he's giving him a vision. So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, and one at the right, excuse me, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? Of course he doesn't. That's why he asked. But he said, No, my Lord. And so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might and it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel, this is the contextual priest at the time, have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? at the right of the lampstand and at its left. Now remember, we're reading Revelation 11. He says, these are the two olive trees. So we're looking at him answering that question. And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And he answered me and said, do, not, do you not know what these are? He says, I know, my Lord, I don't. So he said, these are the two anointed ones. Huh, seem familiar? It's being exposed in Revelation. Who stand beside the Lord of all the earth. So these two trees are standing by this lampstand. Now, in order to put oil in a lampstand, it had a little reservoir at the bottom you'd fill it with. But in order to get oil, you wouldn't just 
tap a pipe into the side of an olive tree, you would pick the olives, you would crush the olives, you would take the oil and put it in the lampstand. But in this case, he says it's not by might, it's not by strength. You're not going to crush the olives. You're not going to put a pipe in the side like a maple tree to get syrup. What you're going to do is you're going to see pipes connecting to these trees and it's automatically going to fill the lampstand and it's just going to continually fill. And these, the point is, is that these two witnesses, as they prophesy for 42 months, they're not going to do it in their own strength. They're going to do it according to the strength of the Lord. They're going to be clothed in irritating morning clothes. They're going to produce fire from their mouth to devour their enemies, to defend themselves. They're going to be able to shut off rain. They're going to close the sky. They're going to be able to turn the waters to blood as miraculous signs like Moses did before Pharaoh. They're going to be able to strike the earth with plagues when they desire, but not by their power. Now, the reality is, this is who are these two witnesses? We know they're the two lampstands, but we don't know who they are. So we're going to spend a little time thinking about that biblically. Because we could surmise a lot of different people. There's tons of people in the Old Testament. But I would submit to you that these are two people that have never died. So who in the Bible never died? Let's start in the Old Testament. Enoch, Genesis. He walked with God, and then he was not. And Hebrews 11 says that he never died. Who else? Anybody? Elijah. Elijah in Kings, he's, he's driving along, and then all of a sudden he's with Elisha. He's already passed on his mantle. And then uh, all of a sudden there's this whirlwind that takes him up into heaven. Now, some people also think it might be one of them, Moses. Number one, because of the plagues that he can do. Uh, number two, because he turns water into blood. But number three, because Moses, when he died, it never tells us about his death. It just says that he goes up. And it might say that he died, but it never tells us where he's buried. And then if you read the book of Jude in the New Testament, it says that Moses was contended for by Satan. Satan wanted Moses' body. And until this week, I thought that maybe that was just because he wanted to somehow possess the body and lead the people astray then. But perhaps it's because he didn't want what was going to happen in Revelation he didn't want Moses to be one of the witnesses breathing fire and prophesying the truth. It's all up for conjecture. There's a lot of thoughts there. But I have there for you in my notes, probably what I ever already just said. Elijah was taken up, 2 Kings chapter 2. Moses died, but Satan wanted the body. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. I'll give you what I think, and then you can study it out on your own. I think that it's Elijah for sure, who in his days was able to shut up the heavens. He represents the law. But I believe that it wasn't Moses. I believe it was Enoch. And here's why. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, before the law. I believe he represents the Gentiles. You have Elijah representing the Jewish people. You have Enoch representing, because think about it, Enoch was before Noah. He was part of that first so over many people that were generations before the flood. He represents all of mankind in a way. It's up for conjecture, but I think it's an interesting study nonetheless. So as we see these two witnesses, these two witnesses, these olive trees, are supplying the oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit empowering them, and they are before the earthly tabernacle, the temple that's getting ready to be set up, the presence of God is coming. He's coming. And so what is in the temple in the Old Testament is a type of what will be in the new kingdom in Jerusalem. And so as we move on, we get to verse 7. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Sounds like a great job description. You're going to prophesy for three and a half years in sackcloth. The worst work, you know, OSHA would be against these occupational hazards. They're going to breathe out fire, which I don't know if it means they're going to blow out fire from their actual mouths 
or if it means that they have the power to call down fire like Elijah did in 2 Kings chapter 1. The, the king at the time keeps, uh, I can't remember the king's name, but he kept sending out these people to shut down because if you remember, Elijah had called a three and a half year drought, which is horrible for commerce. It's bad for the economy. Imagine that. Think about things that are bad for the economy right now. But he called a drought. When he called this drought, the king got mad, started sending out delegates of like 50 soldiers to take out Elijah, or at least to bring him back. And Elijah cries out to the Lord and calls down fire and smokes them. And then he sends out another contingent. And Elijah calls down fire and smokes them. And then he sends a third contingent. And I can't remember if it was the third or further on, but eventually a man goes out there who's a leader of this contingent of 50 people. And he cries out to Elijah, I got a family, man. Don't smoke me. Don't smoke my people. He says, okay, I won't. He says, I'll take you back. And so he takes him back to the king and he gets to talk to the king, but he gets his life spared, right? So I believe that Elijah is actually one of these men. And I don't know if they can breathe out fire like dragons or if they're really just calling down fire, but it doesn't matter. They're able to use their mouths in order to cause fire. But notice that these two men have a mission. Their mission, to prophesy in Jerusalem. And their, their mission is, by the way, not a fun mission because nobody wants to hear what they have to say. Your mission as a believer is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus commanded us, right? That's our mission. Their mission our mission. We, we both have missions. Everybody's got a calling, a purpose. You're not just here to grind and make a paycheck and to move on with life and go on vacation and, and do ball. Like We are here to share the gospel. And I'm telling you, it might seem like death sometimes because, Lord, you want me to speak to that person? They're going to hate me. Are they going to try and kill you? Maybe. But notice here what he says is that no one was able to do anything against them. When they finish their testimony, however, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. They were not able to die until their testimony was over. You are completely safe wherever God sends you until it's your time. Our days are numbered, whether or not there's coronavirus whether or not there's a plague, whether or not there's a tornado, you are safe because you're in the presence and you're in, you're in Jesus until he calls you home. Nothing can stand against you, physically, spiritually, or otherwise, unless God lets it. So here's the reality. When their time was up, they died for the glory of God. And it says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? Jerusalem. Wait a minute, Jerusalem. This is the holy city. And it's being called what? Sodom and Egypt. We get our word sodomy from the word Sodom because the Old Testament story and the homosexuality and the great sin that was going on there because of their comfort and their ease. They went after strange flesh. They were sinning, and God judged them. Sodom, it's calling, being called spiritually Sodom. This would be pretty rough if you were a person that lived in Jerusalem. But go there today, and it is a place of the world. It is not a place that's set apart for God. It is a worldly place. It's still just as dangerous as anywhere on the earth as far as sin is concerned. And yet he also calls it Egypt. Anywhere you read Egypt in the Old Testament, it's the world. When Jacob or Abraham would go back to Egypt, it was like they were stopping trusting God and they would go to the world for wisdom. Going to Egypt is always a negative thing. And yet what he says here is that they're called spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them 
and make merry. And they will actually send gifts to one another because of these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So when they die, there will be a celebration and we'll set up Christmas. Think about the irony. How do we celebrate Christmas? Many of us send gifts to one another. We, we bless one another. We eat together because of what Jesus' birth, because of his life. And in this time, these two witnesses will be killed, and that will be cause for celebration. That will be cause to give gifts. Death. Hey, death. Here's a gift to memorialize the death of these two godly, but we didn't like them men because of unrighteousness being fulfilled on the earth. But notice this. They're not able to be killed until their testimony is complete. They're killed by the beast from the abyss, says the, the angel of the bottomless pit that we looked at in chapter 9. Their bodies will lay in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days. They're just going to let them lay there and rot. Uh, the, the city where our Lord was crucified. So their bodies will be seen, it says, by tribes, tongues, and nations. Now think about this. What other time would we all be able to see it simultaneously than right now? Now, I heard somebody teach this 11 years ago, and they were talking about what I have there for you on the upper right-hand corner of the screen. There's a, a screen capture of the, the live cam on the Western Wall. And right now, if you got on your phones or on a computer, you can see who's at the Western Wall praying in Jerusalem, live, 24-7. But think about it. When something bad goes on, right now we can take our cell phones, we can click live, and I can film what's going on, and anybody around the world can all of a sudden see it right then. So if these prophets came today, and they were brutally murdered, and everybody rejoiced, we could see it right now. What it says then is that all of the nations will see it. Apparently it's going to be going across the ticker on CNN. It's going to be all over the news, and then everybody's going to be so upset about it. 42 months of prophesying, breathing fire. I think it might be on the news. It'll be in the headlines. It won't be coronavirus for 24 days. It will be 42 months of, look at these jerks. Look at these blasphemy. Like, look at, look at them. They're killing people that don't agree with them. How unpolitically correct. And then at just the right time, they're going to be smoked. And people won't care how they get smoked. They will be dead, and all the world will be rejoicing at these two men's death. No respect for their bodies. They were despised for their testimony. And I tell you what, if you're bold, you speak about what Jesus has done, it doesn't matter how grace-filled it is, people will despise you for saying that Jesus is the only way to be saved from wickedness and unrighteousness in this life saying that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's the solution for whatever death you, you go through, is you're going to be despised for it. And the world will rejoice. They'll exchange gifts. But three and a half days later, verse 11 says, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, just like it did in Genesis when God created Adam. It says that he created him from the dust, and then he breathed into him the breath of life, the, the rhema, the very breath of life that God uses to inspire his word. God's word is living and breathing, but it was inspired by God. God breathed. Yet these men, after being killed, God will breathe into them the breath of life, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. It says the whole world sees their death, it says, but it doesn't imply that about their life and their resurrection. It makes me think of Jesus. The whole world was looking upon his death, but there were only about 500 that got to see him stand up and walk out of it, you know, like they got to see him after the resurrection. But it says that those who saw them stand on his feet, that fear fell on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So three and a half days later, 
Death's defeated. Again. You know, we believe in that, but that the world's going to get to see it again. They will be accountable. They'll see life. They'll see death. They'll see resurrection. They'll see Jesus and everything that he did. These men avoided death before. I believe that these men had not died, and so this will be the first time that they died. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. These men will get their resurrection. What saved them? The breath of life that entered them. The same breath of life that's offered to us to be born again. Uh, Those who saw it, it says, great fear fell on them. Now, it gives a comprehensive list of those who saw the death. Tribes, nations, tongues, all around the world. But only those who saw the resurrection feared greatly. A loud voice from heaven calls them up in front of all their enemies. He prepares a table before me, Psalm 23, in the presence of my enemies. The righteous will be vindicated and the ungodly will see it. If there's somebody in your life right now that is a torment to you, somebody that is on you because of righteousness sake, the reality is just accept it because it won't be forever. God's going to make that right. But the same hour that they are brought up and then taken into heaven, look at this, earthquake, destruction, death, fear of the Lord, and glory to God in heaven. At the same time, makes me think of when Jesus was on the cross in Matthew chapter 27. The same thing happened. Matthew chapter 27. When God does something, the earth trembles. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the bottom to top. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected, there was so much power unleashed that people that had already died rose from the dead. And they actually walked amongst in Jerusalem. What a witness. So, back in Revelation 11, we see that happen, and it says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming completely, coming quickly. What's interesting is that six trumpets have been blown, six announcements, and then it stops, and there's an event that takes place of the two witnesses. And then after that takes place, the seventh woe, or the third woe, the seventh trumpet is blown. And at that time, you're thinking, what's going to come next after this? But what happens is it says, then the seventh angel sounded, verse 15, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's an announcement. Think about some of the medieval movies you've watched, and they have the guys that go, and they start blowing, and then after the announcement of the trumpet, there are words. There's a declaration. And that's what's happening here. There's a trumpet sounded, and then there's a truth declared that everybody needs to know. A loud voice proclaiming from heaven. Have you ever heard somebody say or thought to yourself, you know, it's great that God's using us to share the gospel, but couldn't he just put a megaphone on the moon or something and make it loud enough so everybody could hear and get get it over with? Well, guess what? He chooses in this day and age for us to use our relationships in order to share the gospel. But there will come a time where he gets out the megaphone and voices from heaven proclaim. But when they proclaim, it will be too late. The time will be over to profess Christ and be saved. The time will be over for our words to matter anymore. What's done will be done. And so when that time comes, when the megaphone speaks, it won't be declaring the gospel. It will be declaring that it has been accomplished. He says there, um, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. 
We've been evicted. God's throne is set up, and he shall reign forever and ever. And notice this, verse 16. The 24 elders in heaven who sat before God on their thrones, once again they fall on their faces and they worship God and they say, they confess, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and who is to come. We give thanks because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come and the time of the dead that you should, they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who believe must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. At this point, they'll have their reward. God will reward the godly and he will pour out his wrath upon those who rejected his reign before he set it up on the earth. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant, or his promise, was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, and noises, and thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. These great signs from the heavens. And so these loud voices proclaim what God has done through his Son. The people of God praise him for who he is. When was the last time you thanked God for who he is? If you can thank him for who he is, then you can trust him in who he is that he's going to do the right thing. They praise him for what he does with his power. He redeems. He, he sets up his authority. He, they praise him for his reward for his servants. They praise him for his reward for his and their enemies. The, na- the enemies of God will be rewarded according to their works. We might not see it as a reward, but they will earn their keep. They will get judged. He says the nations around the globe are angry. Why? Because their authority is being taken from them and they will have an authority that's not them anymore. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. And to those of us that know that that's the best, rejoicing. To those of us that have been spending our whole lives digging in heels and saying, no, not your will be done, but mine, there will be gnashing of teeth. There will be anger. And then it says the temple of God, not the earthly model, but the real thing is finally open so that John can see inside, which he's already seen inside, and from his throne will proceed judgments, mandates, sound familiar, and righteousness will be in charge. The essential things will be essential. The non-essential things will not be essential. It is heinous that the things that are essential right now and allowed to be open. And it is ridiculous, but that's because guess who's in charge right now? Not Jesus. The kings of this earth are in charge and therefore unrighteousness is allowed to go and righteousness is being suppressed. That's what Romans chapter one says will always take place until Jesus sets up his throne and makes things right again. So here comes his kingdom. My question for you this morning is, are you ready Are you willing to submit to this kingdom? Will it be a celebration for you or will it be woe? Will it be a, ugh? And my other question for you is, if you are ready for this kingdom, are you doing the job of the testimony of the two witnesses? And I'm not talking about breathing fire out on your enemies. In this day of grace, we don't get the right to call down fire. Think about the sons of thunder, James and John. These people come up and they get in the way of the ministry of Jesus. James and John go, you want us to call fire down? You want us to smoke them? Our enemies are Jesus's enemies. Don't get me wrong. But God's called us to love our enemies at this time until it's no longer that time. Who are your enemies? Do you share the truth with them? No, you're right. They don't deserve it. They don't. They're sinning against God. They're at war with God. But he has offered his son to them just as well as you. While we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for the ungodly. If you're sitting here today and you're under the grace of God, 
That's because he loved his enemies. Afford that opportunity to yours, please. Otherwise, you're not representing our king right. And so that being said, Father, thank you for continually showing us through the great tribulation period that we're seeing through the eyes of John and through what he wrote down, that you continue to reach out your arms. You continue to share the, share the good news. You continue to show all of mankind that you are coming and that your throne's going to be established, and it is established. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Help us to be your hands and feet and to love the people that are hard against you. Use your word as a sword to cut through the hard candy shell, the hard brick shell, the hard granite shell of mankind's hearts. And help us to love them like you do, whether or not they despise us. It's for their benefit that we would be willing to go over the line of being despicable so that they might receive your grace and your goodness, so that they might be saved practically and spiritually and be given abundant life. That is hard, but it's redeemed and it's good. These battles that we fight are not against flesh and blood, but they're against principalities and powers and rulers of of the darkness of this age. And the people that are against us are that way because they are deceived. So Father, help us to be gracious. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to be like these witnesses. And help us to trust that even if they murder our character, which is really the only thing that we're worried about at this time, that we will be vindicated in the sight of all of our enemies. That's a comforting thought that all of mankind will see us on the day of judgment taken up and called righteous because of we've trusted in Jesus. And that the things that we said that sounded judgmental were in fact the truth and loving to say. And so, Lord, as we work through these things, we just pray for your grace to pour out upon us and help us to live and to redeem the time, to live knowing that the days are evil and that eternity's long. Lord, we love you and we need you for this mission that you've called us to be upon. Help us to remember that we're safe. We are safe until our testimony is complete. Help us to walk in that safety, trusting our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.